0: Welcome to Thrive in Design, a podcast about making money and beautiful interiors as it relates to product-based businesses in the interior design industry. Each week, we'll discuss innovative strategies on how to approach product development and design sales in a shifting market. I'm your host, Nicole lachey Ben. Welcome back for another episode of the Thrive and Design podcast. If you heard season four last year of this podcast, you know that we were diving into a couple of hot topics in the interior design industry, including AI, aka artificial intelligence, and sustainability. In the last season, we only scratched the surface of these topics, and there is so much left to be discussed. So today we're circling back to one of my favorite topics, which is AI and its impact on the interior design industry with our special guest, Melissa Marsh. Melissa Marsh is the founder and executive director of Plastark, a social research, workplace innovation and real estate strategy consultancy. Her work leverages the tools of social science and business strategy to help organizations make more data-driven and people-centric real estate decisions. Melissa combines quantitative and qualitative social science research with architectural expertise and is dedicated to shifting the metrics associated with workplace from square feet and inches to occupant satisfaction and performance. This holistic approach enables Plastart to recommend evidence-based interventions that make the built environment more people-centric and responsive, promoting both individual wellness and business success. I'm so excited to have you today, Melissa. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Nicole. I'm delighted to be here. And it's been great getting to know you virtually over the
0: last few months and year. Yes, I'm excited. Always really excited about just the connections that I find on the internet, right? Like probably 20 years ago, people thought it was sketchy to meet people on the internet. Now everybody I meet (laughs) in foster relationships always starts with the internet connection. So thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's dive in. I always like to start with asking my guests a little bit about your career path, really, and your journey in this industry. So, what has been your journey to become this passionate practitioner of work experience design and a leader in change management services?
1: Yeah, thank you, Nicole. So I actually began undergrad in political science and then added architecture in undergrad. And part of that was seeking the kind of creativity, the making of things that wasn't part of writing political science term papers. And in my undergraduate career, I also, in addition to architecture, was really focused on understanding the built environment, physical space as an expression of culture and that relationship between art and space and people and how we create the space around us as an expression of who we are and as a way of connecting with one another. I then, I worked briefly in New York City and then I went off to graduate school to pursue a master's of architecture. I was really passionate about high performance green buildings, sustainable design, The proposition that buildings could offer not just a neutral, but potentially beneficial carbon footprint, ecological footprint, something that now 20, 25 years later, we probably call living buildings. And I love the ILFI and the living building challenge because it brings this proposition that our our buildings can have a different relationship, both with us as humans and with the world around us. Partway through my master's of architecture, I learned that the number one energy leak in buildings is human behavior. We open the doors when they're supposed to be closed. We prop open the windows. We turn off the solar shading system. We really mess things up. Certainly not intentionally, but there's not a lot of information that is accessible to help people understand what the space is and how it's intended to operate. And so, between transport, between buildings, the energy consumption of buildings themselves, and all of that, it's really just a tremendous impact on the world around us from a sustainability perspective. And so that was kind of an aha moment for me that we really needed in order to design better buildings, to understand the human operating system, and to understand people better. So I turned the course of my academic career, took as many classes in everything from cognitive science to human behavior, anthropology, marketing, decision-making, organizational design, really to understand how people and buildings can get along better together. And that's been my career ever since finishing graduate
0: school. That is very interesting because you would think that Well, one, of course the built environment is related to people, right? Because people are occupying the space, they're using the space, they're moving around the space. And it seems obvious as you just said it, like this correlation between humans and the built environment that people wouldn't be properly using it or have this energy leak that they're unconsciously creating within this building. So that could be a whole episode (laughs) in itself in understanding that relationship and how humans behavior really impacts energy efficiency and all of those things. So we might have Mm -hmm. to back for another episode on that because now I have about 10 questions (laughs) as a follow-up. I'd be delighted to do so for sure. Yeah. So in understanding all of this information in your graduate career, in your graduate education, and then post-education, Now, tell me more about Plastark and how you uniquely serve the real estate industry and then also collaborate with the design industry in your work. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I call what we do social research and people analytics for the built environment. And really what that means is that we use a wide range of qualitative and quantitative social research methods in order to understand the experience that people are having in space. That could be, you know, we call it work environments, but it's not necessarily office environments. Any place that people work there is an opportunity for that space to have a positive or negative impact on what's being done. So I sometimes say where teachers teach, nurses nurse or coders code, any of those spaces, the physical environment is making a difference. How we feel about the space, how it is giving us an impression, both sort of uh, functionally, you know, is it, is it working for us functionally or technically? Is it providing an atmosphere that is enjoyable? Is it contributing to our health and well-being? Is it creating attachment? Is it making us feel more connected to the people around us or to the organization? In the case of corporate environments, the organization that is designing that space and providing it to people. So we really work to unpack all of those spatial human relations and to bring them to, again, a kind of qualitative and quantitative viewpoint that then informs real estate decision-making at every scale so that we're bringing that human capital, that talent-based lens to everything from what buildings might an organization occupy to how the spaces might be designed within those buildings to even some intersection with the scale of your work contributing to the design, for example, of specific furniture options.
0: Okay, awesome. And I know I'm really into research, right? Because I got a whole degree in design management, but it was also tied into design research and understanding quantitative and qualitative data. So for you, how do you collect this data and boil it down in a way for your clients to understand it and apply it to their decisions?
1: Yeah, so initially I'd say there's kind of three different scales of data. There's big data, which is often generated by equipment. It is the sensor systems in building, it's the tracking information systems, security systems, really that large volume data that is coming out of all sorts of things that are happening on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. I know with some of your guests, you've talked about IoT, Internet of Things. So all of those sensors and parts of buildings that are technology-enabled, but then also feeding that information back up to an internet or to a connected cloud so that the information from them can be accessed, made legible, et cetera. So that's big data in our work. Then at the other end of the spectrum, we have what I call small data, which is conversations and interviews and maybe an anthropological kind of study, looking at things, seeing things, and recording that in a systemic way that allows you to take that small data and make it translatable or comparable to your other data scales. And then right there in the middle is what I call medium-sized data which is things like surveys or online forms or the way we might analyze, say, sentiment through a series of social media reactions kind of things. Those things that they're not voluminous like the the building system sensors, but there's so many of the data points that you really need to process it and address it and find ways to figure it out. So we kind of use those three scales in a, in a sort of triangulation approach, in that your big data doesn't really make any sense unless it has context. context we get from these small and medium-sized data. That said, if you have an interview and you get a couple people's opinion, you don't know how regular that opinion is or how many people have that perspective. So you need that medium data to test or contextualize it. And so that's just a, a little snippet, but it's how we We use those different scales together. And then I would say that in terms of how we make that actionable for our clients, it's really a focus on visualization and making that data into something that tells a story and connects the individual human experience to the sensor systems or the building data system, et cetera. That visualization step allows us to have a conversation about the material, to make decisions on it. I sometimes also say it's a little bit like holding up a mirror um, that allows an organization to see themselves in a very different kind of way by seeing them themselves through that data point or that set of data points. So hopefully that answers your question.
0: Yes, that definitely answers my question. So that goes into the theme of AI. And I heard you mention IoT, the building data systems that are collecting all of this information, the sensors and all that. And we're gonna dive into that in a moment. But before I even do a deep dive into AI, how you're using it, how you're seeing it kind of shaping the work that you do in the real estate and design industry. I'd love to know your first introduction to AI over the years and if you had any hesitations or excitements when you first learned about it
1: absolutely so I I mentioned graduate school that was actually at MIT I'm actually here today because I'm a coach for teams in a startup organization called design X which brings teams of entrepreneurs from across the campus together and gives them an opportunity to have coaching and training and learning around being a startup and having a startup and though in design X those startups are pulled from the the built world so any startup that is really focused on something happening in the built world. Anything from, you know, kind of machine learning or the kind of teams that are represented by DesignX include everything from automated parking systems that would make our cities more safe to programs around uh, global warming and ways to predict that to even improved energy efficiency in homes. So the kinds of problems that are being solved by the teams there are really wide ranging. That was a little bit of a tangent my point was to say i'm at mit today and that's where i had my graduate education and so of course we couldn't help but have an experience of artificial intelligence and a conversation about ai many many years ago i would even say that a lot of the work that went into the things that we think about now from an artificial intelligence perspective really was work that started back in the 60s and 70s and the the pre work of the things that we can do now from a computational perspective were things like a program that I worked with at MIT called Shape Grammars, where we kind of deconstruct all of the aspects of a design into just a set of shapes and relationships between shapes that are then repeated in different capacities. And that breaks down space into almost the same kind of logic that we think of when we're talking about machine learning or AI from a large language model. So where in the AI world that we see in the press and we hear and talk about, we're hearing about large language models. Those are words and phrases and sentences. And in shape grammars, it's an equivalent of seeing what are all of the assemblage of shapes and materials that might accumulate into a design. So to answer your question, I was exposed to the foundational ideas of artificial intelligence during my graduate school experience nearly 25 years ago, and I've always been a tech optimist. I think that technology is really at the center point for helping us address the challenges that we have as humans, whether that be the things we've already messed up, like with global warming. (laughs) Or the things that we're we're yet to address or yet to find a way to address. And of course there are there are risks and there are concerns. You know, it's like with any superpower, it could be in the hands of good or evil. But I think really having the experience and focused on what's possible.
0: Yeah. And even that might be another episode, Melissa. How has tech messed up? <laughs> every every I was just recently quick tangent. I was recently uh, rereading cradle to cradle is that the book no 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 yep yeah yeah mm-hmm. rereading cradle to cradle yeah and uh it was just talking about the industrial revolution and how it's impacted the environment and really not even the work that we need to do to undo it but to just like slow the impact that it has had on the earth over the years so that could be a whole other topic of how has the tech messed things up mm-hmm. here on earth But we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. We're going to stay on (laughs) AI.
1: We're not going to, but I I would just flag that, you know, one of the things that I think people aren't aware of is how much energy and data processing is taken up by video. And some of the different things that we've begun using very prolifically in this hybrid world, while we may not be commuting to buildings and using the, the same amount of gas for that transportation as we used to, we are still doing things that do take a great deal of energy, even if it's just through data processing rather than through a
0: gas-guzzling car. Wow. Wow. So many things to think about and so many facets go into all of this that wouldn't even have been on your radar before. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation. So since you were exposed to AI really early on in your career, even before Probably we started coining it as AI or artificial intelligence. Are there any ways that you've been leveraging or thinking of leveraging AI in your processes with your clients?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned that a lot of the foundational logic or structure of AI, both as it's understood now in a consumer perspective, but also how it's understood or or how it's considered from a design perspective, goes back to work that was done by a wide range of phenomenal people and thought leaders in the 60s and 70s. One of those was a person named Christopher Alexander, who wrote a book called Pattern Language. And Pattern Language, Goes through the whole world of spatial experiences, endeavors to document different things in design and why they pair well together, right? Something as simple as a a bench and a tree. A bench and a tree pair well together <laughs> because it allows an opportunity for respite, maybe a shade, an opportunity for view, etc. And the idea of a pattern language in Christopher Alexander's work is that you build up a set of uh, spaces, aspects of spaces, materials that then create an experience or, or create what we might consider a design. And so, this idea of taking the whole world of design decision-making and pulling it back to the set of things that accumulate into an experience is really at the heart of the way Plastark seeks to almost deconstruct the world around us in order to build it back up with an understanding of why it is this way and why we have these various experiences. I think a corollary in the world of workplace and and design and management is the word culture, right? You hear culture and you think of it as some big thing, right? (laughs) Our definition of culture is that it's the sum Of all of the microtransactions that have happened between people on a day to day basis, and then the values that are underpinning those microtransactions. So if we think of culture not as some big thing that is sort of indefinable and therefore unstudiable, but we, we take it apart and we say, it's all these little things that happen over the course of time and between people. And that then that allows us a way to study it and a way to bring fresh insights to how it could operate differently. Mm-hmm. So to get back to your question, the way that we use some of this thinking to inform how we serve clients is a combination of actually using smart systems, data analytics in the results that we're presenting to our clients, like I described before, but then also having this base sensibility of almost sort of a a science project of trying to identify what are the things that are contributing to an overall experience? And then how can we shift some of those things in order to improve the experience for people?
0: Yeah. And that part, that last part you just said, improve the experience for people. I think that has been a big theme in my conversations with people about AI in general. It's either they're completely scared of Mm -hmm. it, just because they don't have the knowledge of what is AI and how is it used. But at the end of the day, I think if it's used properly, especially in the work that you're doing, it's really acting as a tool to improve some type of system or improve some type of experience and a tool in that way.
1: Yeah, I would just say that one of the challenges from my perspective in the world of design and architecture and building and real estate in terms of AI is that it assumes that we have intelligence. Mm. And in our industry, I think there's a real lack of data and information on what is the experience of the current built world. How are our buildings operating? And without that input of what is successful, what is unsuccessful, what is desirable, what isn't desirable, what is good look like, in design and and validating that with actual human experiences um then we don't have the information that creates the foundation to be future artificial intelligence and so i i jokingly say you know it's the problem with artificial intelligence For the real estate industry is we need intelligence first.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. Because I think people assume that like, okay, artificial intelligence can just like magically come up with information after you maybe ask it a question or it spits out some form of data, like you're saying from these systems in a building, but you have to take a step back. Like how do we even inform that computer program or what have you, with the intelligence first from human beings or from that human experience. So that's a really good point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And really artificial intelligence is just data processing. So if we haven't got the data of what is the desirable condition, if we don't have the template, or if we have not discovered what is the best way to accomplish this, that or the other thing from a social and human factors perspective, then we're without the foundation to put into the model to inform the future variations or
0: to inform the data processing. For sure. And that goes into my next questions, really about ethics, right? Is there anything that we need to consider when it comes to ethics with AI, especially in real estate, especially in design? processes in creating the built environment. Do you think there's anything that we need to be concerned about in terms of ethical considerations?
1: Well, I think you've mentioned a couple times that just one of these questions could become an entire podcast oh, yeah. and I would say that's <laughs> that's definitely the case for this which is that, you know, there's just a tremendous number of things that that we should be cautious about. Everything from the biases that are either intentionally or unintentionally created when we have humans writing the code to analyze the data, it's all embedded with our assumptions. You know, and and in a building context, that comes down to the simplest of things like security cameras and cameras seeing different people in different colors differently. You know, the operator potentially making different decisions about how that data is processed based on who is seen on camera. You know, that's just kind of one tiny little slice, but I think in the built world as much or more as in the the virtual world, there's tons of things to be conscientious about from a from a bias perspective. So that's a whole category. I think a big category is, you know, kind of our our security and our our data rights as humans, and I think that most people are not Even close to aware of how much data is being captured on them or about them. In the earlier days of the internet, there was a lot of activism around things like making it possible for people to see what data is held on them or about them. And I don't think that that's something that has been adequately pursued in terms of sort of data rights advocacy. And then, uh, you know, I think that maybe more aligned with the research that we do is really helping people understand the benefits and the contribution that they're making when they do participate in research so that that can be done in a way that is acknowledged and people are aware of that. And one of the things that we really focus on is I kind of consider it sort of a, a social responsibility that when we conduct research, we are doing our best to bring that research back to the people who participated in it. And doing so at a, in a corporate context can sometimes be complicated because many times, you know, leaders want to be in control of the information. And we're often advocating to make sure that that is shared across an organization. And that even gets to some of the the work that we do in change management and change leadership is that I think that the the data and the research and sharing it with people can be part of the transformation, can be part of the change. It's almost like we think of our our Fitbit or our our self-tracking devices, right? They give us information about ourselves and then give us an opportunity to change something or to do something differently. And so we have that same perspective in work and workplace that by giving Giving people information and feedback about their physical space experience, their digital space experience, sharing that back with them, enabling them to see how others feel about different things. That really helps the transformation and the change journey. It's a—it's an important piece of it.
0: Yeah. Well, knowledge is power, right? People always say that. <laughs> so if they're getting this knowledge, right, it makes them... Mm-hmm. Decide on a more powerful, impactful decision, and not only just for themselves, but for the people who they work with, hopefully as well. Certainly, certainly. So looking ahead, what do you foresee as the evolution of AI and its intersection with real estate and interior design?
1: Yeah, so I think there's so many different options and directions, some of which are more interesting interesting to me than others. I think, for example, that virtual reality has played a role in design for quite some time. I've always been a little bit dismissive of it in part because many virtual reality experiences like putting on a headset or being in what's called a cave, like a a surround sound or surround visual space. It really focuses on the visual experience. And part of my passion for architecture and the boat world and our environment is that our bodies are sensors and our bodies sense through smell and taste and touch and sound and while the visual component of that is significant and for many even dominant it doesn't capture what i think is the kind of quintessential nature of of great architecture was is that it it allows us to use our full sensory palette to experience it so though I would say even even that VR experience and using virtual reality to make decisions about design projects, to analyze design while it's still being developed, I think it's certainly getting a lot better and it's getting to feel more like a real environment in a predictive capacity. So I think that's certainly a, a slice of it. You know, the whole proposition of machine visual recognition of things you know we see a lot of face recognition these days but you can also imagine that a whole bunch of floor plans or city plans or or data about spaces and places could be ingested through machine learning that the computer knows what it's looking at so to speak and so i think that can offer additional ways of of augmenting our design work i think right now now the biggest application of of ai in in a generative sense in design is that you can make many iterations of something very quickly and by iterations i mean spatial differences finish differences color differences texture differences you could say you know make one of these in in pink and green make one of these that's short and tall and you could do that by the hundreds and the thousands in which case the designer becomes more of a curator picking which ones they like, as opposed to directly generating. And I think that will be a totally different kind of design thinking. I'm not sure what I think of it, (laughs) but that's a big piece of the direction. And then I think, you know, in the end state, we will get to something that is more performance based in nature, that is more around design learning from previous design and being in a developmental or consistently improving kind of way. But I think that's the piece of it that's that's the farthest off. In the meantime, we'll have more of this visual rendering
0: experience. Yeah, I think briefly talked about that curation, like what the design process will look like for the designer. If they have these AI tools that are spitting out a bunch of different iterations of a design, will they then just become a curator? And that's going to be interesting to see how that evolves, but I think they won't only become a curator until like interior product companies catch up to AI. So for instance, if they have programs that give them different iterations of the design and like you said, make this one short and wide and green and another iteration with mm-hmm. different attributes, the interior product manufacturers or even building materials companies would be to have some information that are informing their ai tools and i think they are far off (laughs) from doing that right so you see what i'm saying so the ai tools will have to have tons of information from all of the products that are getting put into the built environment for the designers who have less of a role in the process and only become a curator and i think we're very far off yeah because most manufacturers are still trying to figure out how to like post on Instagram, <laughs> let alone like embrace AI. So I think we have we're we have a long way to go for that.
1: <laughs> yeah. A couple things there. I think that, you know, in some of these things that we're talking about, even saying the term AI is a stretch. It's really something more like computer production or automated production. You know, I'm thinking of some of these products that will instantly render a space. So maybe a current space is just a, a blank shell in a building, an empty floor plate. And you can say, you know, what would this look like with office furniture and an art deco aesthetic? And then it's, it's generated, right? Mm-hmm. And that really just is something that's been designed once or twice before, and it becomes a skin for a space, which of course is smart and interesting, but it's not artificial intelligence, right? It is just the ability to quickly cast a set of options as a skin over something that, that is existing. Yeah, I just, I just want to flag that while we might put them all in a big bucket of artificial intelligence for design, that many of the things that we're talking about are not really artificial intelligence in nature. They are more like what we see with the large language processing. They're cutting things up and putting them back together in novel and interesting ways that may be different from how we would put them together as individual designers. I think another thing that you mentioned is when you were speaking about manufacturing, is the ability to give the impression of personalization through mass customization. And I think that really is a highly desirable future condition. You know, you can get your sneakers in any color, you can get patterns on your converse and i think that the furniture world is has some time to spend on this but i think a desirable future condition is that those are able to be customized a lot more than currently
0: yeah for sure because honestly if i see when i see customization in furniture or interior products it's a very analog process right so there's definitely some room to include more technology or even ai in that so, Melissa, we touched on a lot of different topics and as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we probably have to come back for about six more episodes <laughs> for some topics that we talked about in this conversation. But I thank you for sharing a little bit about your journey and how you've grown a passion for real estate and AI and all of the research that goes into informing decisions in real estate, informing decisions in design, and ultimately improving the interactions of people in these still environments. So thank you so much for sharing with me. Absolutely. And I appreciate you being a guest.
1: You bet. And I would certainly be delighted to come back and have those other conversations with you in the future.
0: It was such a pleasure to have Melissa on the show today. If you'd like to get in touch with Melissa at Plastark, head to plastark.com or connect with her on LinkedIn. They have a monthly webinar and monthly newsletter to address a wide range of related topics to our discussion today. And their website has a bibliography for finding their perspective on a range of topics related to real estate and interior design. Thanks for joining us this week on Thrive and Design. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Thrive in Design. And for more strategies on how your product company can innovate in the interior design industry, head to training.thriveanddesign.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave us a review so we can continue to create captivating content. See you next week.